Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Some passages in the Bible just kind of jump out to you. Let me just give you a little picture into the preacher's soul. Some texts just sort of jump out and you just kind of get this sense like, yeah, yeah, that, that'll preach. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to grab a hold of that, man. That's just like, it's just batting practice fastball, man. You're just ready to get up on a mound and throw it straight down the middle of the plate. And other texts, other passages don't necessarily jump out quite like that. And this is one of them. But, <laughs> here's the beauty of the scripture. When you stare at it long enough, you just see the beauty and the power of God's inspired word, and as I have stared at this this week, I am so encouraged about what this text, verses 1 through 13 of Ephesians 3, has to teach us. Um, Today we're going to look at God's cosmic, universal plan of uniting Jew and Gentile and all manners of people together through Jesus' work on the cross in this thing called the church. And we're going to look at some of the implications that flow from that. I know, actually, in the weeks prior, in Ephesians 2, we've talked a lot about that. And this is sort of similar um, line of thinking from Paul. And today we're going to cap off this beautiful thing, this mystery that Paul says is revealed to us called the local church. So let me pray, and then we're going to read, and I'm just going to kind of, kind of explain as I go, and then we're going to uh, final, uh, settle down on a few truths that flow out of this. Well, let me pray. Lord, thank you for today, for a new year, for the power of your Holy Spirit, for the power of your word, for the gathering together of your people, not just here, but all over the world. Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria. Churches have been bombed and Christians have been killed. We do pray for your grace and your protection and just for your Holy Spirit to uh, provide for them and intervene in that situation. We pray for our young men and women in the military some from this church who are deployed in harm's way, we pray for your special grace and protection. We pray for our president, President Obama. We thank you for him, and we bless him, and we pray, Lord, that you'd give him wisdom. We pray that you'd give his advisors and his cabinet wisdom. We pray for, uh, we pray for our, a quick end to the conflict in Afghanistan, and we pray for open doors for the gospel in Afghanistan and Iraq. Lord, we we now turn our attention to this text, and Lord, there are beautiful, wonderful things in this text that you have given us the privilege as a group of people to mine together. So Lord, would you help us? For the Christians that are in this room, as we pray so often, would would you just stir us? Would you rouse us from our slumber? Would you rouse us from our default individualism so that we can see collectively what your plan is for the corporate display your, the display of your wisdom through the corporate body of Christ. Would you, would you help us fall deeper in love with the work of Christ and with each other? 
And Lord, for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, would, would you give them new eyes? Would you give them a new heart? Would you, by a sovereign act of your kindness, cause them to pass from death to life today? And Lord, would you not convince them by some philosophical argument or the persuasiveness of my feeble words, but Lord, would you just make Jesus so beautiful that he's irresistible to them? And would you melt their hearts so that they would trust in him and not in themselves? And Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's read chapter 3, verse 1. Now, here's the thing about these 13 verses. I really appreciate this because you know how I am. This is actually one huge parenthesis. Paul starts a prayer in chapter, or in verse 1, and then something comes to his mind, and the next 13 verses, which we're going to talk about today, are a sort of rabbit trail. <laughs> and then he picks back up in the prayer in verse 14, which is that beautiful prayer that Wayne will cover next week, for I bow my knee before the Father in heaven, and I, just this beautiful prayer. Well, this is a sort of ramble, rabbit trail by Paul, so... Yes, I, I identify with that as a preacher. Well, let's read. He says in verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by re revelation as I've written briefly. So he starts off this prayer, and then he says, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm assuming that you guys have heard of this special stewardship or this ministry that God has given me by his grace for you in particular, meaning you Gentiles. And so what he's saying is he's, he's breaking off there, and, he, and he's saying, do you, do you remember what has happened to me? Have you heard the story? And what has happened to Paul is he was a persecutor of the church. He was a Jewish, Jewish religious leader, and he was consenting to the death, in, in, in fact, uh, behind the death and persecution of Christians. And in Acts chapter 9, Jesus comes back down, knocks Paul down on his way to Damascus, makes a return visit, speaks to Paul, and says, stop persecuting me and my people, and now preach my gospel to the Gentiles. So when Jesus comes back down from heaven and makes a personal uh, mano a mano, you know, in your face uh, plea to you to give your life to him, well, that becomes a convincing argument, and that's what you do. That's what you do. And so Paul now has become this apostle to the Gentile world by the special commission of none other than Jesus himself. And so Paul is reminding him of that. Verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now that might sound a little, um, a little uh, I don't know, egotistical. But again, when Jesus comes back down and speaks to you directly a few times, um, that, that you have a little insight. So he says, well, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul here is talking about this thing, this mystery of Christ. Now here we've got to do a little bit of work before we continue, because what does Paul mean when he uses this word mystery, and he talks about this mystery of Christ? Now what Paul means is not what we mean by mystery. The biblical word, the Greek word that Paul would use, that we now have translated in English for mystery, doesn't really have the same meaning that we would generally mean use for mystery. So we think of mystery as kind of like a, uh, a sort of riddle that we know some facts and we've got to use sort of our human intuition to figure out and find out the rest, kind of follow the clues. 
That's not what this particular word means when the Bible writers use it, especially Paul. What Paul is talking about here is the mystery of God, which has now been revealed. And what the mystery, what a mystery is in biblical language is something that humans could never find out on their own. It's completely counterintuitive. And just by a special act of God's grace, he makes it known. It's not something that we were looking for. It's not something that we kind of had clues to. It's not something that we were close to. It is just an astonishing, counterintuitive revelation of God that he makes known to us. And here we're going to read in just a second that, uh, what this mystery is. And so it's not some sort of clue that we were kind of close to. It's God in a special, astonishing act shows it to us by his revelation. And he goes on to tell us what this mystery is in verse 6. Let's read that together. Verse 6, it says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, and so now, now this mystery is not still kind of unknown. We talk a lot about, I think it's kind of a popular thing in American spirituality to talk about the mystery of God. And, and friends, make no mistake, certainly there is, there is much about God that we don't know. There is there's certainly mystery in, in the sense that we're thinking about it in our language with God. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about this mystery of the plan of God that has not been revealed to the previous saints, but now has been revealed. So it's not just some sort of higher order thing. It's not some esoteric piece of super spiritual knowledge that only some certain people that kind of have the juice card or maybe have like the varsity spirituality that they know. No, Paul is saying clearly here that this mystery has now been revealed and he clearly tells us what this mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs with God's people through Jesus' work on the cross. And so he's saying that now there's, a, there's a, a union of all people everywhere, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Now, now God's favor is not just on one people as it was in the Old Testament, but, but now through Christ's work on the cross, he has united a people for himself from every tribe Every tongue, every nation, Jew and Gentile now together collectively in Christ for all those that repent and trust and believe in Jesus are this thing called the church, the people of God. And now that, that astonishing counterintuitive revelation is now this mystery that's been revealed and Paul has been given a sort of special stewardship to be the one that communicates this to the Gentiles and to the world, right? So think about kind of how counterintuitive this would have been to the people in this time. Think about just the context of the Old Testament when God is seemingly doing all of this dividing, all this separating of his people from among all the peoples of the earth. Well, why is God doing that? Because God is, is a racist? No, because God is purifying a people for himself. He's doing something much greater than just separating off an ethnic people. He's creating a people for himself so that through these people, ultimately, all of the things that they're supposed to do and they fail at are fulfilled in Christ. And now, 
through this one perfect person, Christ, now all the peoples of the earth who turn and trust in him come together to be this body of Christ, which is called the church, and through the reconciliation of God and man, and man to man through and only through the person and work of Jesus, the manifold, beautiful wisdom of God is displayed, and the utter, inconceivable diversity of people, black, white, brown, yellow, Jew, Gentile, pork-eating, non-pork-eating, circumcised, uncircumcised, left coast, East Coast, Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, Yankees, Southerners, Army, Navy. I mean, everybody comes together, right, who, who call in on him. Now, God makes him this mystery known, this beautiful thing called the church that we'll read about here in just a second is the wisdom of God on display. That's the mystery. This is the way... One commentator writes, he says, to sum it up, the mystery or open secret of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles. And I'll add in there, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord from every tribe and tongue and nation with each other through the union of both with Christ. It's the double union with Christ and with each other, which is the substance of the mystery. But notice what Paul says. Okay, so he clearly tells us what the mystery is, it's, it's the Jew and the Gentile, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord together in this thing called the church that we'll, we'll think about here in just a minute. But he says that how does this happen? In Christ Jesus, so it's not just because we're here together, it's not because we know the same songs, it's not because we eat the same foods, or because we practice the same dietary laws or festivals, or because we wear the same clothes, or like the same music. We are together in Christ Jesus so we're together, unified, trusting in what he has done on the cross, which is the gospel. He says, in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. So we need to look at two things there from that phrase, in Christ, through the gospel. The first is we need to look at just the content of the gospel. And the content of the gospel is clearly this, that all mankind, whether you're Jew or Gentile, or black or white or brown or yellow, or whatever stripe of humanity you are, we are all fallen. Whether you're Jew, you can't, you can't fulfill the law that God gave you in the Old Testament, and if you're a Gentile, you can't fulfill the law that he wrote on every human heart that he speaks of in Romans chapter 1. So we're all guilty, all of us, all of us. We all stand condemned before God, completely unable to save ourselves. There's no manner, there's no measure of human goodness that can ever live up to the holiness of God, which we all, whether we are terrorists or whether we are good little church kids, which we all have transgressed and rebelled against. And in spite of our rebellion, which all of us as humans share, God came in the form of his son Jesus to be a perfect God-man in the flesh, facing every temptation that every Jew and every Gentile and everybody in between has ever faced. And rather than sinning and disobeying God, he lived a perfect and completely submissive life to God's law. Just, medit just think about that for a second. Jesus lives a completely perfect life, both outwardly and inwardly in the heart. And he stores up, he builds up righteousness and perfection in the flesh. And he then becomes the perfect human being. He is the perfect human being, and he lays down his perfection on the cross as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's holiness and justice 
and just punishment for our rebellion. So where sinful humanity needed to be punished, as a substitute for that, a perfect human stands in our stead on the cross, flesh for flesh, an eye for an eye, but this time perfect flesh for fallen flesh, and he dies and he satisfies God's wrath on the cross. That's what Jesus does. That's why it's so important that he is born of a virgin and that he lives a perfect life. That's why Jesus' perfect life is just as important as his sacrificial death because his life becomes a satisfactory, consuming, perfect substitute for us. And he dies for you, for all who will turn and trust in his perfection, for those who will not turn and trust in their failure or their own wisdom, but in Jesus' perfection. He dies on a cross. He lays down his life. He absorbs the holiness of God that is against human sin. And he doesn't stay dead. He rises in victory over sin and death. And he's doing a few things in his resurrection. Number one, he's validating his godness, his holiness, his divinity. He is defeating death, right? He's coming back from the dead. So he's validating the fact that he's more than just a man. He's God. And his coming back from the dead is also showing and displaying the fact that the Father is satisfied with his sacrifice because he didn't need to die. So he's not the one that needed to die. He died for us. And he comes back to life. And the third thing that I think his resurrection does is now he's alive and now he can offer life. He's alive. He calls us to life. And now Jesus has resurrected and has ascended and is at the right hand of the Father and now commands all people everywhere, Jew and Gentile, boy and girl, young and old, to repent and trust in his work, in what he did, not in ourselves. And friends, that is the gospel. That's the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's the message of Ephesians. That's the message of Christianity. Maybe you've never heard it put that way. Maybe you have spent so much of your time your sort of religious efforts and a sort of moralistic deism where the pastor or preacher just sort of talked about how you should do better. Well, friends, here's the problem with that. We can't do better. You see, we are completely unable to do better. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus has done better once and for all for us, satisfying God's law against us so that he can give us life. And what's he do when he give, what does he do when he gives us life? He's giving us his perfection, his righteousness, so that when you trust in Jesus, you get more than just the forgiveness of sins. You get perfection. You get his righteousness, which is now given to you. Does that mean that you never sin if you're a Christian? No, but it means that now Christ is in you, and by ever-increasing glory, you become more and more like him here in this earth, still struggling with sin, sometimes taking a couple steps backward, but knowing that God will finish what he started in you, and now you have life. And so, friends, if you've grown up in a church where maybe you're in a situation where you've never heard this, the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity is not do better, clean yourself up, and maybe if you don't have any catastrophic sins, at least for the last 10 years, then maybe God will accept you. Friends, that is not the gospel. The gospel is you can't do it. Jesus has done it. Trust in Jesus alone. And through Jesus, now you can do it. And so even right now, friends, we don't have to wait to the end. I'm not going to pass out some card or give you some thing that you need to repeat right now if you have never trusted in Jesus and that has become clear to you just as I'm speaking 
Right now, look to him. Believe in him. That stirring in your heart, that butterfly in your stomach, that heaviness on you. Friends, that's very likely the Holy Spirit convicting you, showing you that you've never done this. Now, you don't need to scurry off and do something. You need to merely breathe the breath of faith that he is giving you right now, which means look to Jesus, friends. Trust in him, not in yourselves, not in your own righteousness. Don't measure up how relatively good you have been or how you compare to the person next to you. Look to Jesus even now. Friends, that's the gospel. Do it even now. And here's the beauty of it, friends, because I want you to see more than just the content of the gospel. That's the content. I want you to see the power of the gospel because if you are an unbeliever or a believer, I want you to take great confidence in the gospel. He says that this mystery has been known that these Gentiles become part of the people of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So if the gospel is this content, this set of facts about what Jesus has done to atone for the sins of his people, to reconcile them to God, to bring them back to life by giving them a new heart so that they can breathe the fruit of faith and trust in Jesus, he is saying that not only is that the content of the gospel, but that it is through this gospel that people actually come to believe in the gospel and become Christians. So the gospel is not just the end, it's the means which brings about the end, which is your your or my salvation or whoever trusts in God. Listen to these verses. Listen to this from Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, how does faith come? By mustering enough so that then you believe in Jesus? No. The Bible says clearly that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, that's just shorthand for the gospel. So that when God is saving a person, what happens is the gospel is preached or communicated or spoken or read or somehow communicated to a person. And it literally opens ears. It brings life and faith. You see, you see, because we're so wired to be religious doers, right? And so we think about it. Okay, now what do I got to do? No, friends. We are saved through the gospel. Listen to, listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 14. Listen, this is, then I'll move on. I know I'm settling down on this here. This is important. I want you to see not only the content of the gospel, I want you to see the power of the gospel. Because if you are a believer right now and you have a child that is not living for the Lord, or you have a loved one that is not living for the Lord, or you have a friend that is not living for the Lord, and, and, and that just, that weight, that gravity is on you, I, I want you to have deep confidence that God saves through the gospel so that you can just communicate the gospel to them. Listen, listen to what Paul writes in Thessalonians. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, speaking to a group of Christians, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now listen to verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just he calls you to believe in this end called the gospel, but that literally Paul is saying that through the preaching, through the communication of the gospel, it is like an arrow of God's life. It just shoots, and it, it literally, the, the gospel itself brings life. Do you see that? It is like a life-giving arrow 
that when it hits a dead heart, it comes alive, man. It comes alive. So here's the deal. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. So, so, so this should cause us to have great confidence, friends. Right now, if your heart is dead and you are running 100 miles per hour away from God and you don't know how you're ever going to get back to him, oh, friend, fret not, because the power of God, when he wants to get a hold of a man or a woman, he does it even through the preaching of the foolish person like me who's preaching the gospel right now. You don't need to look to yourself. You don't need to look to human intuition. You don't need to look to the IQ of the person that you love that doesn't know Jesus. You need only to look to God because he's saved through the gospel. It's that powerful. It's that powerful. And he doesn't just save, friends. We read it just a second ago in Thessalonians. He also sanctifies. So if you're a Christian that thinks you've graduated on to more, I don't know, spiritual stuff, and the gospel's just the thing that you sort of did, just the box you checked to become a Christian, friends, oh, you have missed, you have missed the glory of the gospel. The gospel doesn't just save us. It sanctifies us, staring afresh into the wonder of the power of what Jesus has done, makes you fall deeper and deeper in love for Jesus, which makes you want to live for him. So it doesn't just save, it sanctifies. All right. So uh, are, are there any people in here that have children who don't know Jesus that seem to be far away from him, or friends or loved ones that don't know Jesus? Are, are you in this room and you don't? You don't know how in the world. You, you're like, yeah, I hear you, man, but that's not me. And you, you store up condemnation from yourself. That's what you've been doing. You come to a church just like this, and you store up a sense of unworthiness. Or you look to a loved one who doesn't know Jesus, and you just wonder how. Friends, don't look to yourself. Don't look to the dead heart of your loved sinner. Look to the only one who can save and stir your heart with confidence that God is more than able to get a hold of a human heart and he does it by the power of the gospel. So you just need your part in this, our part in this, is just think about just ways that we can just keep the gospel message in front of them. And when God intends to save a person, it overcomes. It becomes, as the old theologians used to say, irresistible and he opens the eyes of the blind man and they see Jesus and friends if that's where you are right now there's nothing you can do you can resist it you can be mad at me you can I don't like the music I don't like what he's saying hey man I can't mess it up if God's getting a hold of your heart you can fuss you can kick and scream you can do whatever you want to do you can complain about the music the donuts the preaching whatever if God gets a hold of you it's baby you are on a downhill slope towards grace, man, that's what it is, and there's nothing that can stop it, so come on, come on, when you hit the bottom of the hill, we'll pick you up, and you'll be like, man, man, that was awesome, yeah, that's right, you're a Christian now, <laughs> all right, let's keep going, verse 7, of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, which was given me by the working of his power, right, so this power that saves is also the power that calls and equips even great apostles like Paul. To me, verse 8, though I am the very least of all the saints. Check that out. Now, come on, Paul, really? I mean, you wrote half the New Testament. But it, isn't this just a picture into Paul's inner life? 
He says something like this again when he writes to Timothy. He says, I'm the, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And I think what this is, is just the closer you get to understanding the gospel, the higher view you have of God and the lower view you have of yourself. And we live in a self-obsessed, self-esteem-obsessed culture where, where we, we, just, we think that what we need to do is make much of ourselves, but it seems like the pathway to godliness is to make much of God and less of ourselves. John the Baptist prays in John chapter 3 that he would increase and that I would decrease. But, but most of us are doing like that old Saturday Night Live skit, that guy, that affirmation guy that looks in, you know, I like me and I love myself. You know, those of you that stay up late and watch Saturday Night Live, remember that old guy? I like myself. I'm, you know, I'm okay. You're okay. Friends, that's not the message of the gospel. It's not to prop you up, but it's to bring you from individualism and self-despair by letting you see how glorious God is and how low you are. And friends, that's counterintuitive because we think that, oh, that will lower my self-esteem, but actually it gives us purpose. It empowers us to make much of God, which alone is the only thing that satisfies, not making much of ourselves. So he says to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a phrase. The beauty and the glory and the splendor of Jesus is just, it's, an, it's a, it's a never-ending well of riches. Verse 9, and he says, I've been called to preach this Christ and, in verse 9, to bring light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery? Remember what we talked about, which was hidden for ages in God. And that, that mystery is the, the revelation of the plan of God to bring Jew and Gentile and all people who would trust in Jesus together through Christ's work. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In verse 10 now, I think verse 10 is kind of like the high point of this passage. It says, he did this, this is Paul's ministry, to bring this plan to these people. Verse 10, so that through the church, through this one new man, through this body of Christ, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Okay, let's break that verse 10 down here because there's a lot going on there. One, Paul is saying that the manifold wisdom of God, that, that, that word means that the very sighted nature and beauty of God would be made known through, not the universe, not O'Brien's belt or Saturn or rings and, you know, Pluto, which I guess isn't a planet anymore or whatever, or all this stuff. Not through all, I mean, that, to some degree, certainly that communicates the grandeur and the glory of God. But primarily, the wisdom of God, God has deemed to primarily display it through the reconciliation of people, not just Jew, but also Gentile, to himself and to each other through Christ in this thing called the church. So this dusty little group of a few hundred people, along with huge churches and mega churches in big cities, along with little outposts in closed third world countries where some people over the weekend gathering underneath a hut that are opening up the Bible with a leader there to to baptize them and, 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 
and, and do communion together and live life together. All of these little dusty outposts, all of these groups of imperfect people, all of these formerly sinners now pardoned, receiving the grace of God, who are doing life together, offending one another, forgiving one another, serving one another, rubbing elbows with one another, making each other mad, then giving grace to each other, doing life together, getting sick together, rejoicing in triumph, mourning together, rejoicing together, black, white, brown, yellow, all of these people together as they sort of do life together here on this earth. God is saying in verse 10 that he has deemed to most primarily display himself through that, through us. To who now? To who? Just the angels? As glorious as that would be? Yes, but also, he says, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What what does that mean? It it means, if you look at Paul's use of that phrase later on in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll get to in a couple months, and other places in Colossians, What's in view there when he says rulers and authorities isn't just angelic holy beings, but it's also evil forces, the hostile forces of the kingdom of evil that God is displaying on a sort of cosmic level his wisdom, not just to us, but to everything that is. In a sense, he's, this is his retort. This is his display. This is his answer to evil, and it is the church. I mean, it only says it in Psalms, but I wish there was a Selah right there. Like after verse 10, Selah, meditate on this. Okay, I'll keep reading and then we'll land this plane. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Jesus, God's not playing Monopoly. He doesn't need like a get-out-of-jail-free card. He didn't roll the dice and something bad happened. Ah, snap. You know, somebody already bought Broadway. Now I gotta go get out of jail. What we got Jesus? Here's what we'll do. Didn't go like we wanted it to go in the Garden of Eden or in any of our lives. And so, Jesus, why don't you go down there and try and work things out? Friends, that's not the it says that's not the way it worked out. It says, according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, God is sovereign over all. The future's not open. God God knows what is going to happen and has in his eternal wisdom planned for it and has determined to bring glory to himself in everything and good for his people eternally. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And now he breaks off his rabbit trail because remember Paul is writing this letter from prison, so he's saying So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So here's the main point as I see it of Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. And then I'm just going to very briefly, don't laugh at me, very briefly give you three implications of this. The main point I think of Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 is that God has reconciled and saved a people from among both Jews and Gentiles in every tribe and tongue and nation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and has united them together in this thing called the church, which is what we are a part of. And the church is now his primary display of his wisdom and greatness to the cosmic 
forces of good and evil and everything that is. What we are a part of here is the plan of God for the display of his wisdom. So I think there are three uh, things that flow from that. Now, before I even ask that, honestly, I asked this question, well, what does this have to do with us? Okay, this, is, this, this feels so big and universal and cosmic, doesn't it? What does this have to do with us? But I think as I ask that question, it just kind of reveals something about me. That I would look at a text like this and I would think, oh, well, here's my first inclination as I read this text. Oh, that, that's going to be difficult to preach. Because that feels so big. That feels so outer space. I mean, I agree with the truth. I see it. Yeah, that's great. But it feels so kind of theological in the air. But isn't the fact that it's kind of hard for me and probably you two to wrap our minds around the relevance of that, isn't that just sort of a, isn't that sort of a uh, uh, evidence of how we are like in the middle of like Manhattan staring at one little manhole or one little sign and saying, wow, how beautiful New York is. What an amazing city as I look at this little manhole cover. As opposed to getting up on top. This is, we know what this text is doing. It's taking us to the top of the Empire State Building of the plan of God so that we can see the brilliance and the life and the light and the activity of God from a universal cosmic level. And when you do that, when you go up that elevator of Ephesians 3, your heart should swell with confidence. Your little, puny, insignificant life in West Central Georgia, your little, puny life in the cubicle at CB&T or Aflac, or your little, silly little thing, that, that little piece of paper that you're stamping, or that little drill that you're going through at Fort Benning, or that little diaper that you're changing, or that little conversation you're having in your little, puny corner of the universe, when you lift your eyes, you see that it's part of something big and huge and cosmic and God. And so, so it, what it does when we go up that elevator of Ephesians 3 to get to the Empire State Building, we bring up with it all of our little small little things in our life and we see that God in his kindness and providence is knitting together every tiny little detail for the display of his glory through the lives of his people. So here's point number one. And I'm just going to read these to you and shut it down because it's late. And uh, I talk forever. I know that. <laughs> number one, God displays his wisdom through the church. God displays his wisdom primarily through the church. Not through asteroids colliding in some faraway galaxy. God has deemed to be his primary communication to all of the cosmic forces of the world to be us. The question then is, how, how important should it be to his people? And how should we love it in spite of its flaws, in spite of its inadequacy? You see that part of what God is doing as he communicates through his church 
is he's communicating a sort of otherworldly kindness and grace through his people as they show a different way to love one another, a sort of otherworldly way to love one another that doesn't come from within but comes from without. Do you see that even how we work through conflict and sin and disappointment with one another actually serves the plan of God to display the contrast against the fallenness of this world? Two, we can have confidence that suffering serves God's purposes. Friends, that's the context of this whole digression by Paul. He's saying, he's going to start this prayer of the glory of God, but he's saying, oh, by the way, do you realize why I'm suffering all of this for you? He says that in in verse verse, uh, uh, 12. He says, because of this, this eternal plan of the church, we can have boldness and access with confidence to our faith in him. So, don't lose heart that I'm suffering for you in prison. So, Paul, we can know that God works all things together for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And even he sends his people through trouble and strain and trial. Why? To toughen them up? Well, no, friends, on a much bigger level, to show his people and this world that there's something more important and more eternal and more preferable and more satisfying than these 80 years. Friends, if he would have just blessed Paul with utter and total success and fruit at every turn and everything, he just walks and people fall down and become members of the church. And every, friends, how is that showing the preferability of God? But when he inflicts his servant, when he inflicts his people, and his people don't lose heart, but they point to the eternal plan of God, when they point to Jesus and his work, do you see how suffering and trial actually serves to display God more than temporary blessing? Because when we get blessed, and God certainly blesses, I'm not saying that he doesn't bless his people, but do you see that when he gives us some temporal blessing, whatever it may be, do you see how we look at that thing and we say, oh, look how God is good. But do you realize that whatever that thing is, that thing is going to pass away. But when God inflicts his servants and his people, in this case, Paul was suffering in trial, do you see what it does when Paul keeps his eyes on God's plan in eternity and the all preferability, satisfaction of God and points his people to him. Do you see what it does? It lifts God's people's eyes from these 80 years to eternity, which is our future. I said I was going to read them, but you know I couldn't do that. Three, and then I'm done. Seeing this means that we can be free from individualism. It means that we can be free from the stranglehold, the blinders, the lack of perspective, the despair that comes with doing life on your own. It means we can be free from this folly of trying to live our lives outside of the plan of God, which is the church. So, are you a Christian that's on the fringes of the body of Christ? Man, come, come closer. Come, come on. We're jacked up, you're jacked up, let's all be jacked up together and make much of Jesus through it, all right? Hey, you're going to be disappointed. I'm going to disappoint you. 
you're going to be sinned against, you're going to sin against people. People are going to, people are going to rub you the wrong way. But do you see how part of that is, part of that is God's plan. And if you're not, if you're not yet a Christian, listen, I, I'm not asking you to join the church. I'm not, but do you see how God wants to, he wants to save you. He wants you to trust in him. But it's not just a little individual salvation so that you can scurry on and have a more productive and fulfilling and purpose-filled couple more decades. It's to then knit you together with a community of people called the family of God so that your little insignificant life goes up the elevator of the Empire State Building so that you can see how even your dusty little frail life knits together with a bunch of other frail lives to become a cosmic display of God. Friends, what could be better than that? What is more satisfying than that? Friends, if you're not a Christian, look to Jesus right now. Look to him right now. Trust in him right now. Stop trusting in your own righteousness and trust in God and what he has done in Christ on the cross. Let me pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the church. It is only here because of what Jesus has done on the cross. For my friends that are in this room, that are already believers in Jesus and followers of him and are part of this beautiful plan called the church, Lord, would you cause us to fall deeper in love with the gospel? and what the gospel has accomplished, the church. Would you cause us to fall deeper in love with each other? If there's sin to be repented of, if there's animosity to be, to be laid down with another brother or sister, God, would that happen right now? Would confession and repentance happen today? If there's a hard phone call to have with a brother or sister in Christ, Lord, would it happen today, this week? God, would you cause the Christians in this room to fall deeper in love with your work on the cross and the church that came as a result of it. And Lord, for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, would you give them new eyes? Would you give them a new heart so that they can see the mystery's been made known? Give them ears to hear. And friend, if that's you right now, you just turn and trust in Jesus. Look to him. See the perfect one crucified and risen for you. Not with his arms folded in disgust over your performance, but with an outstretched arm calling you to trust in him right now. Friends, his arm is not too short. His ear is not dull. I don't care what you have done or where you have been or how much you have rebelled. Don't value your rebellion as a greater power than his grace. He is able to Hebrews 7 says, to save to the uttermost. He delights in saving rebels. So friends, look to Jesus. Believe in him. Confess your sin to him. Trust in him. Repent. Turn away from trusting in yourself. And have faith in what Jesus has done. Lord, would you do these things for your glory 
for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.